Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome to SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Thank you for joining us here on Progress After Dark. We are Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble, and we're just like cable news, except we, well, shucks, we like to listen to you guys. So, your finger punching out 866-997-4748 with your lovely digits on your mobile device gets you on our airwaves, and we can't wait to hear from you. 866-997-GRIT is our number. we got a great show tonight. Three of our favorites are here. Two of them regulars. The great Bob Seska will be along shortly. Comedian and NPR host Ophira Eisenberg, who's doing a great off-Broadway show about, well, it, it's about scars. And I went downtown to see it last week in Soho, and I couldn't believe how great it was. Uh, she's also a great political comic, and we have much to talk about. And Dr. Tracy Pearson joins us in the third hour to talk about the unbearable whiteness of Mike Pence and how he doesn't understand separation of powers and uh, how Nikki Haley decided it'd be a good idea to lead with ageism for her presidential announcement. Now, if you didn't get to hear our recent interviews with Alan Cumming about returning his OBE to the British Empire or our conversation with uh, Natasha Leon and Oscar nominee Ryan Johnson about their excellent series Poker Face on Peacock, if you missed any of the celebrity stuff or any of our authors, you could always hear it. On SiriusXM On Demand, on the app, or on the John Fugelsang podcast. Hello to everyone listening live, our evil army of the night. We love you, and we love to hear from you. And hello to all the daywalkers, all you folks who listen to the pre-recorded show. Uh, we love you guys, too. You, you could call us once in a while, you know, take a break from your exciting social evenings and give us a ring over here, or write to us at the show's Facebook page, what have you. It's a big family. You're part of it, whether you like it or not. So we have much to cover tonight. Uh, a lot going on in the news. Want to give a big shout out to our good friend, uh, the great Sean Bertolo, who is helping run this thing tonight, while Chris Househeld selfishly continues what he calls a vacation. Yeah, Thea Harper is running the show. I'm like, we have, we have, we're all no Confederates tonight. No one is working on the show below the Mason Dixon line. I hope you had a good Valentine's Day. I, I, it's not my thing. 
Valentine's Day. Um, I, I appreciate it. It's it's if you don't know, named for the patron saint of um, buying overpriced crap to publicly demonstrate your affection. And I think, you know, conditional love is great. I was raised on it. So prove your love as much as you can. Right. I think it's great. We have this holiday that's a uh, uh, it's like Christmas for the greeting card, floral, chocolate and lingerie cartel industries. Um, and that's fine. You know, it's nice. I, I don't hate Valentine's Day. I think it's the perfect time to make that kid who's an outcast in school feel 10 times worse about it. But over the years, I've struggled with my contempt for the day. And now that I have a little kid, it's it's fun, right? Y- y- when you have a little kid, suddenly Valentine's Day, you're like, oh, you're going to buy you're going to buy Valentine's for all the kids. You're going to be that parent, right? You Oh, you're not being excluding. Who's who's the least popular kid in your class? We're going to make sure that he or she is covered. None of that with my kids, right? We are correcting past wrongs. We are we are realigning karma with raising a, a child who is inclusive on Valentine's Day. But I will admit, I wasn't the one who planned Valentine's Day in my house. The the woman I live with who uh, who, who wanted to have this child, uh, she, she was on point this year. And she thought it'd be a great idea to buy him uh, all kinds of little candy bags he can give out with lots of Skittles and such, which all the other kids did. And that's great, right? So um, what happened was this. We were doing the show in the studio last night. And we were on from 9 to 11 here in the East Coast. Uh, we had uh, our interviews and pre-tape for the third hour. Glad y'all like those. I raced home because I was feeling pretty sick. I hate to admit it, but daddy's got a cold. I'm, I'm runny nose and sneezing, so I apologize in advance if I sound miserable. So I, I got home around 1130 at night, and uh, my child was still awake. He was struggling. He kept waking up and couldn't sleep, and he was moaning. And I thought, okay, okay well, let's, let's see if this goes away, and it didn't. So around 1140, I went in to try to, to cuddle with him, and then began a four-hour odyssey. And I was up all night and I would get him to sleep and I'd go back to bed and then I'd hear him moaning again and he couldn't I just said are you sick he had no fever I gave him more children's Tylenol but he just couldn't get comfortable and then I realized it's the goddamn Valentine's Day candy I went to work last night and I wasn't here supervising as my child ate all the candy all those other inclusive little rat bastards gave him because every kid has to get a lot of candy now on Valentine's Day how many parents had Valentine's Day massacres like I endured. I was up with this crib lizard until 3.30 in the morning. Four hours. Four, I, don't, I don't like my family that much. Up till 3.30 in the morning. We read like six chapters of Stuart Little. I, you, I, it was appalling. So I feel really justified now. Deeply hating Valentine's Day on a second generation level. So thank you. Tonight, however, I want to talk about a tale of two scandal reports. Two Different scandals. Maybe. Let's begin with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch. He is a hero. He is undoubtedly a hero for three reasons, really, historically. He's the man who won the Pulitzer for exposing the My Lai massacre of Vietnamese civilians by U.S. troops in 1968. He is also the journalist who exposed the torture of detainees at Abu Ghraib prison. And perhaps most notably, he's been on this show. So I have nothing but respect for Seymour Hirsch. Followed him. My dad loved him. I grew up respecting him. His new report claims that a single unnamed source told him that it was Navy divers, U.S. Navy divers, who laid explosives that destroyed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline underwater, not from Vladimir Putin, but under orders from the Biden administration to frame Russia potentially a huge story, right? And again, I respect Seymour Hirsch, but according to the source, 
who had direct knowledge of the operational planning, writes Mr. Hirsch, a team of U.S. Navy divers planted the explosives in June of 2022 during an annual NATO exercise in the Baltic Sea. And they did this while tens of thousands of naval personnel from different allied countries were on site. And uh, presumably hundreds of thousands more were monitoring this exercise remotely. This is according to Hirsch's source. And so Team Biden was able to get behind the Russians' superb surveillance and planted these explosives. Again, in, before the eyes of thousands of people, military intelligence officials from Europe that depend on Russian gas that goes through the pipelines. And then later, a Norwegian ship dropped a sonar bomb, which activated the explosives. And we, along with Norway, blew up the pipeline. The White House has called Hirsch's story an utterly false and complete fiction. Now, I struggle with it. Maybe you do, too, because you'll notice most mainstream news organizations are not covering this. Not that they would. Covert acts of international terrorism to serve U.S. foreign policy has been, I mean, something the CIA does since it began. Lying about this has been a constant throughout our country's history. We could talk about all the different wars, all the different lies that have been used. We've witnessed in this century America telling elaborate lies to justify us getting into a war. Most influential news outlets have ignored this legendary journalist bombshell report claiming the Biden administration blew up the Nord Stream pipeline to try to get Europe to rally behind NATO and Ukraine to help repel Russia. Uh, this story is based on one single anonymous source. He cites one anonymous source. Now, in more recent years, Mr. Hirsch has claimed that the bin Laden raid never happened. He denies that Assad used chemical weapons. I'm open to anything. I don't think it's fair to call him a conspiracy theorist. I do have a lot of respect for him. But this theory that the U.S. was sabotaging the Nord Stream pipeline which I guess because Joe Biden wanted gas prices to go up during his presidency. It was published on Southfront, which is a proxy site linked to Russian intelligence. We don't know how this is going to play out, but there's four things I can guarantee you. Number one, this report is a massive gift to Russia. Number two, this report is a massive gift to the U.S. right wing, who's telling you that Joe Biden's a calculating warmonger and a feeble dementia patient. He's those two things, calculating warmonger and, and doesn't know where he is. Uh, number three, this story is not going to go away. It's going to be carried by right-wing websites and by far left-wing websites. I can promise you we will continue to talk about it, whether it's proven true or not, or the most likely outcome, we never know one way or the other. But we will cover it. We will talk about it. We welcome your calls on it and what you think about it. Um, and maybe we'll get Cy Hirsch to come back and talk about it. But we'll see. Let's instead talk about a different report we learned about that we can prove, because as recently as what, this last weekend, Donald Trump was still claiming that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from him. He spelled stolen with two L's, by the way, if you're a fan of Truth Social. Um, and it's rigged, you know, and he's pushing the conspiracy theories of voting machines, election workers, Chinese bamboo. And he's made these claims even as what, 60 odd lawsuits filed by his campaign were tossed out for lack of evidence, some of them with extreme prejudice. His Homeland Security chief said the election was not rigged was completely legit. Uh, his secretary of state, his own daughter, all told him he lost. And now it turns out, somewhere along the way, after the election, but before January 6, 2021, he paid some experts to investigate. And he didn't like what they found. A research firm investigated Trump's claims that the presidential election was fraudulent, and its findings were suppressed. 
because, according to the Washington Post, they found nothing to support his claims. It's the Berkeley Research Group. Oh, Berkeley, well, they're, they're deep state liberals right there. They were hired by Trump's 2020 campaign. They gathered a team of around a dozen people to look into the claims of voter fraud and irregularities in six different states. Berkeley Research Group's findings were squashed. They were, they were hidden because they didn't align with Trump's lies. And as a source told the Washington Post, the team, the 12 research covered all their bases. They studied these six states and they looked into voter machine malfunctions. They looked into whether dead people voted. They looked into any evidence that could help Trump, the client who was paying them, show that he won. None of these findings were ever presented to the public. None of these findings were ever used by Rudy Giuliani and Trump's other lawyers in court because they weren't what the Trump campaign was hoping for. I mean, they believed that they were voting anomalies and unusual data patterns, but not enough to make a difference in who won the election. So they briefed Trump and they told former chief of staff Mark Meadows and a few other people in a conference call in the final days of December 2020, before Trump threw a rally urging his supporters to march on the Capitol. And apparently the call got kind of heated, but they said they looked at everything, uh, literally everything you could think of. Dead people, voter turnout anomalies, anything they could think of, they looked at. And it contradicted most of Donald Trump's theories. Now, the Berkeley research was done through one of their subsidiaries companies called East Bay Dispute and Advisory. And FEC filings show that the Trump campaign paid East Bay Dispute and Advisory. Again, they're a subsidiary of Berkeley, like KBR is a subsidiary of Dick Cheney's company. Donald Trump paid these folks $600,000 to do this study. And when I say Donald Trump, I mean the suckers who gave donations to Donald Trump. Their money went $600,000 in the final weeks of 2020 to this very, very expensive, very formidable research. So again, uh, in the late December of 2020, they told him, no, there was no election fraud, didn't change the outcome. After he'd spent $600,000 of them to find evidence of fraud. And then he hid the results and he kept pushing the lie, and he perpetrated January 6th anyway, and he hasn't been held accountable. Guys, it cost Donald Trump $600,000 to be told, no, sir, you're really a loser. I mean, we've all known that for free all along. I I'd like to volunteer to the Trump campaign. I'm willing to, to come to Mar-a-Lago, and I will tell him he's a loser for substantially less than $600,000. I mean, this is still going on. Like, it's all about criminal intent. Trump knew he had lost. His lawyers had filed 62 suits challenging the election. There was one suit that had an inconsequential ruling favorable to Trump. The other 61 were thrown out of court. Remember the cyber ninjas? They hand counted the Arizona ballots to find out how badly Joe Biden had stolen the vote in that state. Even though the Republican Secretary of State said they hadn't, they were looking for bamboo fibers from China and they found out that Joe Biden won by even more votes than had been originally counted. Bill Barr, he came out in public and said the level of voter fraud was insufficient to alter the outcome of the election. Of course, he said it vaguely like that to so the general public would think, oh, there must have been some fraud. It just wasn't enough. Recounts from Arizona, Georgia and Wisconsin all showed no differences from the previously certified results, no significant differences. I mean, sure, people vote illegally here and there. They're not registered. They get to vote. It doesn't sway the outcome of an election. AP 
did a very thorough investigation in the states of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. There were 25 and a half million votes cast in those six states. And AP was able to identify 475 instances of suspected ballots. Out of 25 and a half million, they found just under 500 questionable ballots. And most of them were false votes and they were caught before they were tabulated. And the majority of the false votes you know, they were for Trump, not for Biden. Remember a year ago, Texas's Lieutenant Governor, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, he set this bounty of 25000 to a million dollars, and he made this big announcement. He would give this money to anyone who could substantiate claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election. In October of 2021, he had to make his first payout, actually his only payout, uh, an award of $25,000 to a Pennsylvania election official who reported a Trump supporter who voted twice and Dan Patrick had to pay him in Michael Bender's book. Frankly, we did win this election. He reports that on the 4th of, uh, of November, 2020 around 4 AM late night after the election, Trump asked Kellyanne Conway, how did I lose to that guy? He knew he had lost. They all knew he had lost. His daughter told him he had lost. They were just trying to steal the white house. And the mistake they made, the biggest mistake they made, was hiring a legitimate firm like Berkeley Research, because now there's hard proof that they knew they were lying. So when you pay a reputable research outfit to find the truth, and they tell you the same thing as all the secretaries of state, all the state election chiefs, your own Homeland Security chief, your own secretary of state, 60 failed lawsuits, and your own daughter, you, you can't really claim they're all part of the deep state, can you? Well, you can on Fox News, because again, our number one natural resource is conservative white people who like being lied to. Oh my God, if we could find a way to harness conservative white people who like being lied to, we could have the greatest form of clean energy. Trump lied. He knew he lied. He's still lying. He's getting paid for his lies, knowing he's lying. It's fraud. Guys, this is showing criminal intent on Trump's part. This news might be very good. For Ron DeSantis. Now, again, let, let, just to, to bring it back to your loved ones, your coworkers, that guy on Facebook that you're still friends with for some ridiculous reason that you still talk to, who are all believing Donald Trump's lies. No one's ever identified the individuals who are behind this multi-state fraud. No one's ever talked about how the, how they recruited all these different agents to reprogram voting machines and and discredit mail-in ballots and destroy ballots. And rigged elections, they're only declaring that the elections were rigged in states that Trump lost. Again, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Those said, 44 states are great. Now, a lot of down-ballot Republican candidates in those states won. You know why? Because there's a lot of Republicans who don't like Donald Trump. And so they voted for, who knows, for president, maybe Biden, maybe third party, maybe left it blank, and then voted down-ballot Republican. We see it across the boards. Why would anyone rig elections against Donald Trump, but not against the other Republican candidates? <laughs> the Democrats lost seats in the House. You have to believe that they rigged an election so they would lose seats in the House and not know who won the Senate for another month. You have to believe that if you're going to say it's rigged. Through a spokesman, Mark Meadows declined to comment. That's okay. We'll be seeing him commenting with his hand on a Bible at some point. Uh, Donald Trump's spokesman, Stephen Chung, said... President Trump received a record-breaking 74 million votes, the most of any sitting president in the history of the country. Anyone who takes a look at Joe Biden glitching through his presidency knows who really won the election. 
Biden won 81 million votes to Trump's 74. Uh, if Biden had won 75 million or 76 million, it still would have been more. Joe Biden won the Electoral College 306 to 232. And Mr. Chung didn't answer any questions about Donald Trump's reaction to the researchers' findings. And again, he paid $600,000. Guys, if your election was rigged for Biden, why would the Democrats ignore a pile of Senate and House rates and state House rates? I know they're Democrats. They screw up. I get it. I get it. But if you're going to rig an election, you don't give yourself a 50-50 Senate. Joe Biden got a record-breaking 81 million votes, you hump. That's more than any president in the history of the country. Everyone told Trump there was no election fraud, even his own people. So just keep this in mind going forward. Before Christmas of 2020, Trump knew he had lost. He knew the findings of an impartial expert study that said he really did lose. He knew there were no irregularities. He knew there were no illegal acts that stole it from him. And again, it's not like the Trump campaign really paid. Not one penny came out of his pockets. Suckers for MAGA did it. And Trump knew this and went ahead with his plans to launch a terrorist attack on our Capitol and to stop the legal certification of the election results to overthrow the will of the American people. Guys, Joe Biden won that election. Donald Trump lost. And now Trump goes around, says he won. He organized a violent terror attack and insurrection against the United States. He tried to steal the election. They tried to throw out the will of the American people, knowing that it was all lies. And now, today, Donald Trump is playing golf in a country club in Florida and has never been arrested because that's how our country works. We want to know what you guys think. We're at 866-997-4748. Bob Sess is coming up shortly, but before the break, let's go to, let's try to get in one call, Marie in Atlanta. Hello and welcome. Hello. How are you, John? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Actually, um, I was calling because of the <laughs> statements about, you know, statements from Mitch McConnell um, yes. because of Rick Scott's untimely um, outing of basically the Republican plan to destroy Yes. Medicare and uh, Social Security. That's right. Here's the thing. If you think about this the same way we think about the things that Gorsuch and Amy Comey Barrett and, Lord, I can't remember, I call him Justice Paps Blue Ribbon. Yeah. Um, if you think about the things they said about Roe v. Wade when they were being considered for a- appointment to the Supreme Court, you have to view McConnell's statements the same way. He said, there is no plan to end Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. That may be true, factually. The plan well, may instead there be... Is, there is the a plan. Whole. There are there are several plans to do it, but it's not the official designated plan of the exactly. party management. Yeah. Exactly. The, the, there are plans, and the plans, if carried out, will ultimately lead to the demise of Social Security and Medicare. But yeah. it doesn't change the fact... It, it doesn't... What he's saying is not untrue. And what who's so, saying? Joe, he, Joe Biden or Mitch McConnell? What Mitch McConnell is saying. Yeah. May, uh, Mitch McConnell's furious about it because he's coming out saying, this is not a plan. This is the, he's, he's, he's called out Rick Scott. Joe Biden wouldn't say Rick Scott's name in the State of the Union. Mitch McConnell can't stop saying that's the Rick Scott plan. It's not our plan. And now, exactly. do you hear what happened today? The, the Club for Growth just endorsed Rick Scott for re-election, like years oh. early. It's a total rebuke of Mitch McConnell. It shows how divided the GOP is. And and keep in mind, this is Rick Scott who ran the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and they didn't win the Senate 
and they wasted all that money and Club for Growth is endorsing him anyway. They care about their own hatred more than they care about winning elections. Exactly. So I just wanted to give folks a way to reframe these statements and, and to see them for what they really are. They're, they may be true, but if you understand what's underlying them, you realize that they're technically not true. They're meant to mislead. Well, I mean, but but it's 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 both true, isn't it? I mean, Joe Biden mm-hmm. chose his words very carefully when he said there are sitting senators in this body who want to do this. And I can name you three of them right now who are on tape and on record as wanting to do it. And Mitch McConnell knows it. And McConnell's furious because those senators have given Joe Biden ammo. So, exactly. again, Mitch McConnell is telling the truth. He doesn't want to do it. He knows what a loser that is, but he's <laughs> stuck with them. So he gets to own him. I think it's great. Marie, thank you so much for that distinct point. I really do appreciate it. We're going to take a really quick break. When we come back, more of your calls and the great Bob Seska. We're at 866-997-4748. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Bob Seska is the host of the Bob Seska Show. You might be a fan of his his columns. columns. You might might be a fan of his appearances on Stephanie Miller. We love anytime we can get him on the show. These fascists are grotesca with their vulgar Trump burlesca. Thank God we got Bob Seska broadcasting from his deska. His humor is Kafkaesca and his height is statuesca, like the top of Mount Oleska, like John Podesta on a Vespa. Put that down, that Putinesca, and behave yourself, Francesca. It's a politics fiesta when you're rolling with... Bob Seska. Hello, Bob. Welcome hey. back. Never get sick of it. Never get Happy, sick of it. Thank uh, you so much, Valentine. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. Any UFO yeah. sightings in your neighborhood this week? Just, just curious. Um, no, not necessarily. But I woke up in a terrible mood this morning and automatically jumped to the fact that, well, maybe I'm possessed by demons. You oh, know, because. That. Yes. Well, you know, you take something ordinary, like, oh, there's a thing in the sky. We don't know what it is. Must be space aliens. <laughs> That's like there are a thousand things in between thing unidentified in the sky and then jumping right to space aliens. I mean, lots of possibilities. When you've exhausted every other possibility, Bob, you have to go to space aliens. And and that's uh, (laughs) you know what? It's it's hard not to be a conspiratorial thinker these days, because if I hear one more story about space aliens, I'm going to be like, am I just not supposed to know about Ohio and a derail train and Ohio's on fire? As I said on my show yesterday, John, that maybe we should start transporting vinyl chloride in giant floating balloons in the sky, because then (laughs) then we'll pay more attention (laughs) when they're up there. 
I mean, undoubtedly, the balloon thing is a legitimate story, but I, I, here's yeah. what gets me. This is going on all the time. This is always mm-hmm. happening. Maybe balloons is a new wrinkle, but satellites are a thing. Shucks, Google Earth is a thing. We're all spying mm-hmm. on each other. We're all looking at each other. We all know where each other has our nukes. I mean, I, I, I don't really understand the hype about this, unless it's just that eagle-eyed people in Montana were able to see this balloon, and that set off this domino effect. It's really kind of a creature of social media, isn't it? A story like this, because it's ripe for, you know, the fun speculation that social media is best at doing. Uh, And we all participate on some level with that. And that's fine. But, you know, we can't allow it to push serious stories out of the news. I mean, uh, first of all, I think these were commercial aircraft. Is that what we heard? That was the sort of vague word from the Pentagon. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be just about anything. Um, yeah. But it's not space aliens. No, it's not. No. Because if it was, <laughs> if not. it was space aliens, we wouldn't be hearing about it. So we can no. Plus, you know, John, I I think we're barely evolved to handle the internet and the glut of information that the internet provides. I mean, see also QAnon and vast portions of elon's twitter these days we just can't deal on my worst day i'm like you know what you know what to solve all of our problems shut down the internet but um word of that we we just we're not evolved enough i think the internet came along too soon in human evolution and so now we're just trying to scramble to figure out what it's all about now imagine if we actually had first contact with space aliens here can you imagine how indiscriminately nuts especially Americans would go. I mean, I think there are some European nations that would be kind of centered about it, taking sure, it in well, an they, they've kind seen of way. They've, they've seen immigrants yeah. before in European nations. It's not a scary thing they hear yeah. about on Fox News. They've met them before and know <laughs> right. they're okay. Yeah. Right. I can't even imagine Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter feed if there were space aliens. Somehow it would involve Joe Biden. I know Tucker Carlson on his show last night was saying something about how if, if there were aliens, and they met up with Kamala Harris and said, take us to your leader. They would be taking the aliens to the senile old man in the White House. Well, you know, that senile old man just last week owned every you know, 200, all 271 Republicans on right. live national television in a joint session address, which has never really happened before. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to hear about senile old man. And you, well, I'd I, like to I, remind I you, your... though, that, that that feeble old dementia patient also is the calculating warmonger who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. So he can he, he's playing <laughs> all of right. us, Bob. Just keep that in yeah yeah thank yeah, you the aliens aren't gonna land yeah. we don't have warp drive yet and again if they, no why 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 would they i mean unless there's a lot of vibranium <clears> under <throat> the ground I, I i i have nightmares where the aliens land and i am assigned to explain the electoral college system and why we can't have health care in this country and i i don't yeah. want them to come it's it's my recurring dream uh but i i, <laughs> I do want to talk to you about east palestine because yeah the stories are finally beginning to trickle out and it's been very discouraging to see our friends on the right when this is ideally, their outrage is the perfect time to say, hey, we need more environmental regulation, don't we? Mm-hmm. We should have more yeah. regulation on the railways, shouldn't we? Corporate profits cause this disaster. And then they they realize, oh, I just wanted to use this to hurt Biden and Pete Buttigieg. My God, Bob, yeah. how scared are these people of Pete Buttigieg running for president? They won't blame Mike DeWine. They won't blame Donald Trump, who actually undid one of Obama's safety regulations. 
they're just going to use this to weaponize it to go after people they don't like. They don't care yeah. about the fact that this was preventable. They don't care about the fact that this happened because someone didn't do their job. And they don't care about the fact that this is going to happen again. They just need the points. They just want yeah. to use it to beat somebody with it. Right. Jim Jordan was tweeting about how this was Joe Biden's infrastructure uh, issue that the, the the lack or the infrastructure plan failed to fix the railroads. You know, the infrastructure plan that was passed four or five months ago oh yeah that was supposed to repair all the railroads well in reality the fact of the matter is that uh the obama administration implemented a new rule for the braking system in these rail cars and donald trump one of the first things he did in his first year was to deregulate that rule and it's industrial deregulation that is causing so many problems for people in red states i mean these are the people they're voting for and those politicians are actually making life less healthy for them, whether yeah. it's uh, a, a fracking or these sorts of uh, chemical spills that will, you know, God only knows the cancer clusters that that town is going to see in coming years that True. will probably get blamed somehow on Joe Biden. And uh, that's the great irony of it, because it's really it's really Republican deregulation at the heart of this. That's it. But again, you know, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter that Republican deregulation is leading to poison in the air and the water and the soil. It doesn't matter that deregulation could have created this 50 car pileup and that, you know, a huge chunk of uh, Ohio's on fire. It doesn't matter that this could be one of the worst uh, uh, environmental disasters of our lifetime. If you make liberals cry, we'll have more train wrecks. That's it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that's what being a conservative means now. Do you make liberals upset? Do you trigger the libs? That's that, right. That's it. That's, that's yeah, the idea. Yeah, said, yeah, I think uh, you said on Stephanie Miller's show last week that uh, the Republican Party is all about creating content. <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's the central drive of what they do. Content yeah, for Fox, the podcast. They're, they're Fox News primetime content. Fox News. Providers. Yeah. Absolutely. These hearings are all about them giving monologues that can be aired on Fox Mm -hmm. News later on. They are content providers for right-wing media. It's amazing. It used to be that Fox News, you know, was like this media arm of the Republican Party. We're at a time now where the Republican Party is the political arm of Fox News. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a great way to put it. And the sad truth of it is that half of the political debate, generally speaking, I mean, we can quibble about percentages, but generally speaking, half of the political debate is occupied by an unserious party that all they want to do is, you know, provide a rodeo for the gawking entertainment of the people who give them money in exchange for that entertainment. And that's what it is. It's this symbiotic relationship where the more uh, the crazier they get, the more bizarre conspiracy theories and and the meaner they behave. the more money they end up collecting. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a fantastic example of that. She has no uh, real function as a member of the Republican Party in the House caucus. Her function is nothing but, hey, look at me. I just said something insane about Nikki Haley today. Give me money. And then everyone gives her money because they love the red meat. It's just they're selling red meat to easily led fanboys is what they're kind of doing. That's it. 
I mean, you're right. Um, let me ask you about the deep state, Bob, because uh, we now know that the deep state is so deep. Uh, Donald Trump paid uh, this Berkeley firm $600,000 to examine the campaign and all the election fraud he was talking about. And uh, he, he paid them six hundred grand for them to say, you're a loser. Now, I, I, yeah. I'm opening myself up to the White House. I am willing to fly to Mar-a-Lago and tell Trump he's a loser for substantially less money. <laughs> Get in line. Yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. like to do that, too. Yeah, this is what the second study that we've seen that Donald Trump and the Republicans have financed. There was the Arizona uh, audit that took place that actually showed Joe Biden getting more votes than he actually right. did in the election. Now, this particular study, this Berkeley study, uh, more money, more Save America PAC money, well spent. Congratulations, Republican donors. You've been suckered again because this is all they found. Yeah, they found nothing. I mean, no indication of widespread voter fraud, any of the conspiracy, dead people voting and so on. This was not this was all debunked by Donald Trump's own study. It's difficult to emphasize how important that is. And ultimately, and this is the great irony, how unimportant it is to Trump supporters and Republicans. It just doesn't matter that Donald Trump financed the study personally. Kept it no, to, no, to no, himself. No, no. He didn't. He didn't finance oh, not it personally. personally. But he save financed America it Pat. with the gullible's money. But go on. You're, you got to write. Yeah. Well, I mean, per- personally, insofar as he ordered the study, right. And so, this happens in what December of 2020, late December, and we only now hear about it. And of course, it's a big dud. And it won't change any minds on the Republican side because it doesn't matter. Maybe Berkeley is now working. Maybe they're part of the deep state. God only knows. I had a bad feeling about Berkeley. I knew all those hippies back in the 60s. I, I knew they were <laughs> part of the right. swamp. Knew it. Yeah. Bob, Bob, you're right. But but maybe it would change minds of uh, prosecutors. Because to me, oh, yeah. this clearly, clearly states there was intent. He knew it was, I mean, we knew he knew it was a lie. If there's anything the January 6th hearings told us, he was told by his own Secretary of State, by his own Attorney General, by his own Homeland Security Chief, by his own horrific daughter. He knew he had lost. Now we just know it's in paper. It's in writing. And again, Mm -hmm. this is a couple of days before January 6th. So Donald Trump walked to that rally and incited them to violence knowing it was all for a lie. I have to believe Mm -hmm. that that speaks to criminal intent. Yeah, Donald Trump possesses this toxic positivity, as they're calling it, where he believes that he's the greatest thing in the world and everything about him is the greatest and all the rest of it. And we've heard all the hyperbole from him. Uh, And uh, I don't and I don't know what cuts through that. But at some point, it, it doesn't matter anymore what he personally believes, what his psychosis is, what his pathology is. It's yeah. irrelevant whether he has toxic positivity. I mean, you, you get uh, an audit in Arizona. You get this Berkeley study, both of which are saying nothing of what you're nothing that you believe actually came true. This is not a conspiracy. You lost the election. And that is that has to be enough for prosecutors. It doesn't it shouldn't have to come down to, well, he was told, but he still genuinely didn't believe that he lost. But like but Reagan got away with Iran-Contra, right? Reagan and everyone got away with Iran-Contra arming both sides of the Iran-Iraq war, illegally mm-hmm. selling weapons to the Iranians who had killed our Marines in Beirut, illegally using the money to fund the Contras in Central America after Congress passed a law saying they couldn't. 
plausible deniability. That was yeah. it. Reagan's age. It was heavily implied that, oh, he's such an old guy. He can't remember what he approved on this day or that day. He skated. There's no room for plausible deniability anymore. I mean, it's literally in black and white in print in a report now. And I would imagine every detail of this report is going to be made very public before long. Yeah, I really hope so. Uh, not that it's going to make any difference, but it's important for the American people to understand what the truth of this is. And once you get to a certain point, it really doesn't matter what the loyalists think. It doesn't matter what the Red Hats believe. Ultimately, the facts have to win out. And in a court of law, facts will win in that battle between unfounded belief and mania and cult-like behavior versus the hard, cold reality that Donald Trump lost this election and then was kicked off of social media for being a threat to society after he tried to stage a coup in Congress. Staggering. And so I'm really encouraged, actually, right now, John. I don't mean to change the subject too much, but uh, uh, what's happening with Jack Smith and the use of the crime fraud exemption to get uh, Corcoran in there to testify, I think, is really encouraging and shows that uh, Jack Smith has no fucks left. He's going he's swinging for the fences. And we just heard I just heard before I came on the show that um, that uh, Mark Meadows has also been subpoenaed. So, yeah, these are seriously. We know how seriously Mark Meadows takes his subpoenas. (laughs) It's true. But we are officially inside the White House. I mean, inside the Oval Office specifically. Uh, We're right up to the resolute desk with Mike Pence being subpoenaed, Mark Meadows, chief of staff. And uh, it's just a matter of time. I I keep saying this as as impatient as I've become with this. I still believe that we're going to see indictments drop any second now. It could either be Fonnie Willis or it could be Jack Smith, one or the other. They're going to be one of those two people are going to be first to indict Donald Trump. And it's just a competition Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned is to see who who it is. Bob, in our remaining minute, I want to ask you about Nikki Haley's presidential race, but it's an absolute fraud. She's running for vice president. So let me ask you about the Flash (laughs) trailer instead. They're really opening the Flash movie. It's really coming out. What did you think of the trailer in the Super Bowl? I thought it was incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing thing to see Michael Keaton back in the Batman costume. And I I hate to put it this way because it seems like the Flash's story, Barry Allen's story in this movie is really interesting and compelling. It's kind of a Sophie's choice that Mm -hmm. he has to make in this story. And that's fascinating, and I'm looking forward to that. But ultimately, for a Gen X boy who was graduating from high school in 1989, went and saw Batman 89 and became obsessed, um, it seems like this movie is like a bowl of Lucky Charms. And The Flash is like the cereal part of the Lucky Charms. And Batman is the marshmallows. Let's face it. People are going to be buying the Lucky Charms for the marshmallows. And uh, that's fine. I'm just I'm excited to see this. There are so many interesting things about this, and I'm trying not to get too wrapped up in the fan service of it. It seems like a really compelling and and fascinating story. I want to go back in time and find you and me as kids and tell them that in in the year 2023, (laughs) go back to 1989 and say, you will see Michael Keaton as Batman and Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones in 2023. Um, I heard with two flashes now, he can go terrorize underage girls in two different states. So there's that as well (laughs) on top of it. Yeah, I think the only thing that could drag this movie down is the star of the movie, Ezra Miller. And, press, yeah. 
But he's, yeah, I but I will say this so much about how he's in treatment. We're going to hear how bad he feels. I guarantee he's going to be engaged to somebody like Matt Gates yeah. before the end of this. I mean, you know, <laughs> come on. And poor but Matt I Gaetz, also they're not, gonna, they're not prosecuting Matt Gates. He went and got married to that woman for nothing. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know who's going to be the big star coming out of this movie? It's I mean, obviously, Michael Keaton's going to be the marquee. But Sasha Callier, I think that's how you pronounce her last name. The actor who plays Supergirl. Yes. She as every time she's on screen in that trailer, I'm immediately gripped to it, even more than the rest of the even more than maybe at the same level as Michael <laughs> Keaton's Batman. I almost said more than, but then I'd be lying about that's okay. maybe the same, maybe not quite as much. But she is. Uh, I, I hope James Gunn casts her as Supergirl in his yeah upcoming project in the rebooted you yeah bob i gotta say you are so cool it's great to have these conversations (laughs) to balance that out uh what's the best way for our listeners to follow you mr seska uh you you can follow me on instagram instagram uh my handle there is the bob seska and my podcast is bobseskashow.com you are the best sir thank you so much for joining us tonight thanks john we gotta take a quick break we'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748 Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I am so excited to welcome our next guest. She's done the show many times in the past. Ophira Eisenberg is a great comic. She's the host of NPR's nationally syndicated comedy trivia show, Ask Me Another. On that show, she has interviewed and played silly games with people ranging from Patrick Stewart to Aquafina to George Takei to Ethan Hawke to Julia Stiles, Louis Black, Uzo Aduba. She gets the good guests. She's also a regular host and storyteller with The Moth, and her stories have been featured on The Moth Radio Hour and their many best-selling books. She's been on, oh my God, Comedy Central this week at the Comedy Cellar, uh, New Yorker Festival, um, and her comedy special Inside Joke is available on Amazon and iTunes. But I'm here to tell you, uh, she's doing a new one-woman show, and I'm someone who loves solo theater. I see a lot of it. I do a lot of solo theater. And I love Ophira's material about parenting. I love when I get her to do political stuff. But her new show, Leaving a Mark, a comedy about scars <laughs> is unlike anything I've ever seen. It sounds grotesquely unpleasant, and it, at times it, it, it is, but it is a truly example that the most noble thing a comedian can do is take pain and turn it into gold. It is a great pleasure to welcome a brilliant political comedian, Ophira Eisenberg, back to SiriusXM. Hello. Oh, hello. Oh, my goodness. And when you were just talking about how you're sentimental about three times uh the the of course what rang through my head was three times a lady does mm. that i does anyone 
still oh, yeah. love that I'm, song. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of, of early, early Lionel Richie, <laughs> but I'm more a fan of Three Times a Loser. I just, I have the ridicule. I know, Grubber, right? So, yeah, yeah. Oh, so great. So great. Oh, Vera, uh, I, I, I brought my you. wife to see your show at the Soho Playhouse last week. We came downtown to check I it out. I know. I, I couldn't, I was so flattered. Let me just say that right off the top. I was very flattered. Um, and, no, please you don't. know. Please don't. Please don't be. I was heckling from the back. Okay. That was me. Um, Great. But, but it's it's a re- it's a really strong show. It's a really, really unexpectedly lovely and moving and powerful show. And I, I just I, I want to talk about a lot of things, but I, I'd like to begin with the most obvious question. As a writer, what is the process that leads you to decide you're going to devote a big chunk of your life to writing an hour long show? It's not a stand up set. It, parts of it are stand up, but it's really a piece of theater. Um, yeah. About the many scars you have on your body. And as someone who's known you for 10 years, I had no idea. I mean, it seems like this is something that you were always, probably always thinking about doing. Yeah, it took me a really long time. Actually, you know, and just, I wrote this show before the pandemic, uh, or a version of it. It actually changed quite a lot between now and then. But I wrote it before the pandemic, and then I was working with someone to get it up in some form and then the pandemic happened and i was like well obviously shelved for obvious reasons but then i was also like no one is going to have the desire i was like when we we are also traumatized that no one's going to have the desire to hear about you know my comedic and real take on other traumatic events and then whatever you want to call this uh, now i always say now we are, you know, the pandemic is over due to mutual decision. Uh, so wherever we are now, I I was like, oh, no, I think actually it's never been a better time to talk about real things that have happened to us throughout our lives, because there is, a, I think, a greater empathy and understanding. And I think everyone is more aware that we are all walking around each other Uh, carrying all this stuff in us, on us, yet we all, you know, are just like, we're fine. We're fine. Passing. We're all all hiding our scars. We're all, you know, concealing our trauma. We're all acting like things are fine. But um, in the case of this show, you know, I I always think I've done a lot of solo theater. I love solo theater. I find there's three things (laughs) that destroy a solo play. There's three things that let you know that you went to the wrong festival of one acts here. Uh, uh, Number one is is, uh, you're you're a stand-up comic doing your act with a couch instead of a microphone and calling it theater. That's one. That ruins... That kills right? one There's shows. just a couch for no reason. There's it's a couch like, and yeah. no microphone. And now it's the play. Hey, here's my jokes. Um, number two thing that destroys uh, one-person shows is um, uh, it's just a person giving their political propaganda for applause, and it's not funny. It's just preaching. Right? And even when I agree with... Even when I agree with all the propaganda, it's not theater. And the number three thing that kills one-person shows, I find, is um, what I call uh, someone having therapy on stage and charging you admission right. to watch. And it, this show is all about pain. I mean, I, I will confess, and I'm sure many people have said this to you, I didn't know how much trauma <laughs> your body had endured beyond childbirth. I mean, uh, how many scars you had. And I can only imagine that it's got to be cathartic. To write about the most horrible things that have happened, the surgeries, the accidents, the, the, the awful mishaps that have that have afflicted you, and to be able to put that, to articulate it 
into an entertaining story that also has laughs. It seems like it's as healing for you as it is for the audience. Uh, I w- I mean, like, I would hope so. I do think that there is something to owning the narrative of your story because, you know, whenever you tell a story uh, about something that happened to you within a small amount of time, you are choosing a way, like that's the skill and the art of it, you are choosing a way in which to tell it. So you are yes. picking a lens to put this through uh, to make it entertainment, right? To take it out of that therapy zone or that's the processing the zone yep. and make it into entertainment. So you make Make a decision on how you want to tell it and that to me that's a little bit of artifice because you're never going to be able to tell the whole story how of could course. you possibly you so you make that decision and it really does i don't think it, it doesn't replace the truth and it still is the truth but it is just some of it and it does i feel like it was it is like revelatory in some ways because all of a sudden you go, wow, I didn't know how this and this lined up if I looked at this story from this perspective. So you actually gain some more insight into your own life. Uh, and it is, it is, it is, you know, I hate the word empowered because I think it is just so overused, but it, there is something amazing about owning your story and feeling like you get to tell it. It's not life inflicting anything on you anymore. You get to tell it. You own it. I mean, we see this with all kinds of people who've survived trauma, uh, that when you can actually convert your pain, the horrible thing that happened to you, into a story. That's why it's so important for people to write about things that have happened, abuse or accidents or whatever horrible mishaps. And I think we see this with abuse victims, with both women and girls and former altar boys, that when you come out and actually say, this really happened to me, it allows us, it's, it's made our whole culture go from a culture of victimhood to a culture of survivors and yeah and please i do think the most important thing is the dialogue right i i am also i'm not doing listen i i was like these are the stories i want to tell i you know i i I got to this place where i was like these are the most important stories in my life and i want to tell them and i'm going to put them together and i'm going to try to make it as funny as possible but also i'm not going to there was a script where i just glossed over all kinds of stuff because I didn't want to go there. And I was like, that's yeah. wrong. I can't do that. I got to actually you also can't be therapy on stage. You got to talk about the most horrible things that ever happened to you. And you have to make it entertaining and tight. It's like, and that's right. Yeah. And the whole point of it, is it for, I mean, is it for me? There's a certain value of that, but what I find, uh, and as you were there, part of what this show is that I feel very strongly about, whether it's uh, and I hope it continues is I do a competition with the audience uh, who has the like a scar, a scar that is meaningful. I, I just award a, a prize, but I get people to talk about their scars very quickly. And the whole point of that is to kind of set this stage of like, we're all here together. People have been through stuff uh, and this is a safe space. So I can also talk about mine. Uh, and I find that as much as obviously I love it when people come up to me afterwards, they're like, that was funny, or I cried and I laughed. But there have been more than one person that has come up to me and said, no one talks about this. I have this, you know, like a version of I was seen, I felt me, I thought about my own stuff. And, you know, that's when you're creating a dialogue and you feel like what you're doing yes. has value. You, you talk about scars that are on your body that come from uh, motor accidents that come from a bout with cancer um, that come from a childbirth Um, and what I found interesting was they're all so different it's all constructed in a way that 
it's a very political show because it really is a show about surviving and it is a show about I, I hate the word empowerment too but what i also loved is um on a performance level it you, you sort of do three different hats here you are the storyteller which we know you from then at one point you become a comic and you start talking with the audience the lights come up and people talk about their scars and you do a lot of crowd work holy crap you're doing like serious comedy crowd work in this show <laughs> And then you shift into NPR host and you had uh, someone join you on stage for a brief interview about a pretty incredible story uh, of scars and renewal. And that's what surprised me the most. It it was so entertaining and it kept moving not just from topic to topic, but from format to format. And and the show really does come alive. What what are your hopes to to do with this? And, And tell me a bit about the kind of responses you've had. Yeah, so I mean, I just would like to, you know, have more of an opportunity to do it. And uh, right now I'm doing it a very pared down production situation. But I think there is a place like I would love to be at a proper theater and have sound design and lighting design. I think there's just a lot of production that can be added to this to come alive because Scars is just really, it's very visual. There's just a lot to work with. Um, The reactions I mean, I think, you know, like you, and I do mention at the very beginning of the show, I, I give it this bizarre title, Leaving a Mark, a comedy about scars. And I talk about, I make fun of my own t- title. And then I say this, I say a comedy about scars, but, you know, I, I say something akin to like, that's false advertising just to lure you in the door. <laughs> uh, and I think there's some, there, there have been a few shows where I say that, and people laugh. That was the intention. And there's been a few shows where I've said that, and there is silence. Like people are like, what? Yeah. What? Wait, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Not another memoir about cutting. I hope. Oh, another cutter. Okay, let's sit through this. But, so, but that's but what was the, amazing. The audience is so caught. The audience is so caught off guard. It's not the sort of thing we hear about in a stand-up show ever. And you right. find a way to draw everyone in. And I mean, but but I think what's most powerful about it is that you really had a lot of horrible things happen to you. I had no yeah. idea, and yet it I hasn't guess. made you bitter. And you've done the most noble thing. You've you've turned pain into gold, which is what artists need to do. And I try to talk to which I, I think is this is something we talk a lot about just from a different angle. Like people are talking a lot about their bodies and body positivity and how their body is consumed by culture. And we talk about it usually in terms of size, but not a lot of people talk about bodies that are marked in some ways and what that is like. And because a lot of my scars happened when I was young uh, and I wanted to be just like every other teenager and young adult and adult and to have sex and relationships. And I personally, you know, wanted to be with, I like have a lot of fun and be with a lot of partners and what that was like constantly negotiating with other people about how my body was perceived from them and how much yes. I had to give away of, of myself before we could just, you know, have fun, basically. You know, I talked about casual sex and how I never, I would love the, the full dose of casual. Yeah, there's no such thing. I mean, we talk so much about body image and what this culture does yes. to women and how we live in a society that, you know, an economy that has to sell products by making women feel ugly about themselves. But this is a kind of negotiation that I will confess I had never imagined before. And, you know, because I have this huge, I have a huge scar on my torso and uh, it's very interesting. The torso on a woman 
is the most commercially viable like yet provocative place to photograph you look around if you're now aware of like how many times do i see headless women's torsos in commercial photography it's everywhere i mean basically if you have anything up or, or below that you're dealing you know breasts and and um, right. and vagina that's pornography but the middle is like a probiotic to add you know like <laughs> it, it is it is this thing and you i it just like women's bare torsos that yes. is like a, such a consumable image yes uh, yeah. it, it is popular i see the appeal but but <laughs> and i want to i want to let <laughs> listeners know that at no point in the show like there's nothing unpleasant we don't you don't actually show your scars or show pictures no. of them um it's all no. impl although you do have a very very charming a, a deeply charming and creative way of showing us what the scars are like and where they are without actually showing us the scars. It's a very, very creative piece. How, how long did it take you to, to write this? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's gone in so many uh, incarnations. So I didn't touch it at all during the pandemic because also I wasn't into it. So I picked it back up. Uh, so I started in 2018 and then I actually submitted it to a solo show competition it was this women in arts in new york um award nice. award and and uh, i guess also honorary uh like they give small bursaries and so i many categories i submitted it i won for the script and i thought oh there must be something to this i also thought it was unique it so is. but i you know i put i kept putting it away and bring it back out so all in all over the span of time like 2008 to now so that is a long time but years of abandoning it because i just was like not the right time and then yeah. i was i had a million excuses so talk about sabotage i am a pro at sabotage <laughs> but but also it's 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 not the kind of subject matter we're accustomed to hearing in terms of american entertainment so i can understand why it would take you a right. while to get it right it takes six or seven years to just get a first draft of, of good solo shows i think I, i'm dying to know what has been the response of the men you've had in the audience yeah i mean i feel like for the most part i am you know i i got None of it has been negative. I think people have un said to me, I didn't know I was going to cry. I've had people just quietly hug me tightly. Yeah. Uh, and Sorry about I have that, had... by the way. I hope that wasn't appropriate. <laughs> I know it was before the show and you had to go on stage. So I'm really sorry. But yeah. And, you know, a lot of like, I never thought about this or I like this. This is my personal favorite. I had I had a guy say to me, you know, I, I sat down and as you're talking about scars, I'm thinking, oh, I don't have any scars. I don't have any scars. And he goes, but, you know, like your story is so compelling. And he goes, and then I think it was like right around 45 minutes. I was like, oh, no, I have that scar there. Oh, oh, yeah, I also have that one. Mm. And he was like, it's so interesting and he goes, and I know everything about those scars, and I know what where the sun was in the sky, and I know, you know, where my mom was that day. He was talking about one that he got when he was a kid, and he was like, they are so these these points in my life that I know everything about how I got that, and I would have never thought about that. Uh, yeah, so I I thought that was really cool. So I mean, the obvious question is. Uh 
is it healing? I mean, has the process of rehearsing this and running it and obviously the edits and rewriting and edits and rewriting and then doing it in front of audiences, figuring out where to get the laughs, has it changed the way you view your scars? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, every single time I hear the words coming out of my mouth as I am doing them, it is another step in a different direction where I'm like, oh, I guess. Uh, and I, I'm looking at them a little bit differently. I am looking at them a little bit differently, but I know that they are not, I would say mood ring is not the right um, uh, sort of comparison to it, but it, it's like dynamic. And I think that's, that's how it is that you just, sometimes you look at these things on your flesh and you're like, I'm a survivor. And then other times you're like, I'm wounded. I've been through so much. And other times you don't see them at all. It's, it, it's always dynamic and it's always going to change depending on where you're at and where you are in the world. Yeah. And that's, that's what I think they're meant to be. But I, the ultimate the ultimate point of them is that if you are able to tell the story about the scar, it means you're here. That's the that's ultimate right. point. And it doesn't even matter if it's insignificant. That, that's true of medical yeah. metaphorical scars too. If you can tell the story. Absolutely. If you can tell the story, it means you're here. So there's like a spoiler alert. Even it's a, it is a comedy, but there's plenty of deep stuff. And the spoiler alert is even when you think I might have died, I'm telling the story. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, you know, I, 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 one of the things I love about your work on NPR and as a comedian is some comedians can balance um, intellect and wit at the same time. It's very rare for a comedian to balance intellect, wit and heart. And that's something that you do um, particularly well on the Parenting is a Joke podcast. That's my oh, segue. Thanks. I learned that in broadcasting. Nice. Well. Oh, my um, God. That's very uh, expert. For those who don't, and I have listened to the podcast, it's delightful. It reminds me that you have to be able to make fun of this grueling experience or it will destroy you. But I'm curious, <laughs> how long have you been doing that podcast? And, and, it, and what was the genesis of that? So we started that in uh, October of this year was our first. So it's it's pretty much brand new. We're going to hit episode 20 in a couple weeks. So nice. that's our that's basically half of our year. And I I looked around like I think our kids are about the same age. But I, at that point, when I was all of a sudden having a child after years and years on stage and off stage, John, I said I was not going to do it. I, I had jokes about it. Anyone that wanted to know, I was like, not for me. And then, uh, you know, I changed my mind, basically. Yeah. And it happened, which is miraculous. But I looked around at that point and I felt like all of these stand-ups I knew all of these creative people suddenly have had were having kids and there was a lot of people above me that did not yeah and there was a lot of people that below me that some of them were and i thought why what is going on that we all decided to have kids and there i mean some people acquired them some it's not it was not just like oh you know man and a woman and they got pregnant people were going to great lengths to have a child in their life and mm -hmm. I thought, we have to gather all these stand-ups while this is happening. Because, you know, when they're little, too, there's just so much to talk about. And of I thought, course. we got to gather this and talk about it because it is weird that is happening. <laughs> the amount of comics I am talking to who have newborns to yeah. seven-year-olds is wild. 
I mean, Samantha B did your show. Judy Gold has done your show. A yep. lot of really funny people who have really funny takes on these little crib lizards have uh, have been on parenting as a joke. And I mean, I- I'm curious does it does it make you a better parent or or does parenting no. make you a better comedian? Because I feel no, like yeah, better. I had a child for the same reason I had a colonoscopy. I needed material, and that's why I did it. But <laughs> what, what's what's it been like for you? I mean, of course, you know, I think as you uh, reach different points in your life, it is hard to experience firsts because you've just experienced so many things in life. So then you get a child in your life and you're just, you're going full hog into first. So it just breeds a lot of new material, a lot of creativity. So there is that. And it's so imperfect. And then it marries so poorly to a job where you are traveling, going uh, at night, leaving to go out at night to perform. Uh, Also, just the demeanor, the expectation of how the audience sees a comic is a very independent, independent solo, you know, limitless nighttime, nightlife time. So you're battling all of these these things at the same time. So you get these stand-ups on who in one breath they're cracking jokes and in the other breath they are very vulnerable and cute uh, when about their kids and I you know I love that I love when those yeah. things push up against each other. That's that's my favorite because that to me shows it all. It shows what it is and you know, the kind of stand-up I remember when I was watching stand-up, even like as a teenager, that was, I don't know, mom stand-up, I guess, mm-hmm. was not cool. Yeah. It was not I mean, cool. Roseanne, Roseanne had some good stuff back in the day, but yeah. Roseanne yeah. did have some good stuff. And that was yeah. totally, you know, from a different frame of reference. Absolutely. But, but it now I, it was, yeah, now I feel like there's a lot of parents out there that have very, you know, it's fresh it's irreverent no one has to worry about talking about their kid in a way where there's like oh someone's gonna call social services and take my kid away like i think there's just a a much more open conversation too about the struggles like you don't have to hide it you don't have to pretend that you're doing well that's it and again i think you made me realize both scars and children are horrible things that happen to you and you found a way to make it funny for us. Everyone, if you're in New York or near New York, do yourself a favor and see Ophira Eisenberg's show, Leaving a Mark, a comedy about scars. It is all about self-acceptance. It is all about healing. And if you can't make it to New York, then follow Ophira because she's going to be bringing the show on the road, right? This is going to be touring? That's the plan. That is the plan. How do we follow you and uh, how do we follow you? Yeah, I'm on all the socials at Ophira E. There you go. And of course, the podcast uh, is called Parenting is a Joke. It's hilarious. I don't know how you manage. You're going to be on it soon. So anytime. Good luck. I have I have a lot of very bitter grievances to share with your listeners. So anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. I love what you're doing. Thank you, John. It's great seeing you. Great seeing you. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Sirius XM. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. 
Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm John saying This is Progress After Dark. Mitch in Kent State, thanks for your patience on hold forever. Hi, Mitch. Welcome. Hey, John. Thanks for picking me up. Hey, Hi. Uh, Brian and uh, you and Brian were talking about um, uh, Ohio River and on uh, fire. Actually, it was a kind of... Ohio home. River, yes. Yeah, in Cleveland. Of course, okay. uh, Randy Newman had that uh, famous song, Burn On, about that. Ah. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen tonight, but the uh, Norfolk Southern people declined the meeting tonight. They're supposed to have a meeting, town hall meeting with them. And I guess... Uh, Interesting. Has it, well, they were saying that there was threats, physical or threats to the company, and so they backed out of the... Well, uh, I can imagine why. Norfolk Southern is about to become a very famous evil corporation that has uh, destroyed a big chunk of our beautiful country and has damaged mm. or inconvenienced a lot of people and animals, and mm. I mean... What just keeps coming back to me on this over and over again are two things. Number one, the right wing doesn't care about environmental protection. They just want to use this to beat up on politicians they already don't like. But number two, this thing was preventable, Mitch. Right. They were actually just showing uh, uh, there was a a camera at uh, someone train yard uh, about 20 miles north of, uh, of it that was passing through the southern town Salem Ohio and you see that and, rail car axle like just just yeah, sparking exactly. all over exactly yeah. I mean that's you know you know another 20 miles up from the uh, accident so just uh, god awful and uh, and there's, there's people just up and leaving they're giving up their jobs and and their, and their life and pull up roots and moving and uh, yeah uh, my god it's just uh, I mean just, we'll see I mean I still I have a lot of hope that maybe that maybe the worst uh, is behind us and that maybe this will be an effective cleanup. I mean, uh, you know, I, look, I don't know who to believe. What, setting this vinyl chloride on fire to avoid an explosion, and they call it a controlled release. I, I don't know where the control thing is. The, the clouds look horrifying, but maybe from everything I've read, that's the one way you get rid of this stuff. To keep it from seeping into the ground, you have to burn it. And I guess you have to hope that the cloud it creates when you burn it doesn't kill a lot of people and animals. I, I want to believe the worst is behind us on this, but it's still too soon to say. I hope. Uh, John, um, Nikki Haley, I don't know if you heard or not, but... Uh, uh, speaking of preventable a, disasters, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wants to have a comp test for uh, for anyone who wants to run for president or 75 years or older. Did you see that uh, competition? Oh, I test? did. Now, think about this. Nikki Haley's not going to have the guts to come out and actually go after Donald Trump, so she's right. going to do it. She's going to try and have it both ways, because she still is holding out hope she can be a running mate. So she'll come out and say, well, I, uh, bullies don't mess with me. I, I take care of... Bu-. No, you don't. You bowed down to a bully and, and served him. But now... Now she seems to be trying to tweak both Biden and right. Trump by saying that every politician aged over age 75 should have a competency test. Yeah. Why do I think she's not going to demand this for Clarence Thomas, Mitch? I think, you know what, I think she's mixed up. I think what she means is a civics test, okay? Uh, <laughs> let's see Donald Trump pass a civics test. How about that? Uh, yeah, you know, so, I'd love uh, that. A citizenship okay. test would be great. There you go. That too. But she wants uh, mandatory uh, competency tests for politicians 
who are over 75 years old. I, I, I assume she only means Biden and Trump, but we both know she doesn't mean it. She's never going to promote this. She's never going to pitch it. She's just trying to say Trump's old, Biden's old, without coming out and saying it. Exactly. Just in both ways. Hey, Mitch, thank you so very much for the call. Peace. 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 